Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's get ready to rumble! He's the fastest man on the planet. He'd have got there, Rabbit. Well, we are joined by uh, Alex Twiles, number one fan, the headgear enthusiast, one of the most busiest men on Twitter, uh, Brian Sini, aka the NRL Physio. How are you going, mate? Uh, yeah, good, man. It's uh, been a busy, busy start to the season, but um, yeah, happy to be on and have a bit of a chat. I think busy is an understatement, mate. It's uh, It's been wild, obviously, from an NRL standpoint, but also uh, all things fantasy sports. I think uh, your DMs be blown up left, right, and center, and uh, people just seem to think that you have the answers to teams' crisis when they haven't even put them out. Yeah, that's right, man. Um, yeah, the DMs, are, unfortunately, this year, I, I very rarely get to any because, yeah, it's just... Like it's fantastic. Like it's it's really great that I there's so many people out there who appreciate my info, and I couldn't be more grateful for that. But yeah, it just um, yeah, I feel like this year it's really gone up a notch with um, with the the number of requests that I'm getting and different things. So if anybody's listening and they're sitting on red or you know they've sent me a DM and it hasn't been replied, I do very much apologise. But um, yeah, there's there's plenty more where that came from. You've probably got about sixty thousand followers on on social, and I've only got about seven. Uh, my DMs are getting blown up left, right, and center. So I can only imagine what yours are with with ten times the following. Mate, we've got you on today. Obviously, um, you're the go-to man for obviously all things injury analysis. But I think one thing we don't talk about too much is is the post side of injuries, the the ripple effect, and the and the ongoing issues that players have surrounding them. So we've got uh, a couple of injuries, common ones. We'll start head to toe. And obviously, it's a huge talking point this year: concussions. We know that the HIA uh, protocols. And being diagnosed with a concussion is probably two different things, but what is the process from a player that that has had a bad tackle or a head knock on the field for them to be fit for the next week? And, and what are the, some of the complications? Obviously, Nathan Cleary, a couple of weeks ago, had six days to pass and that wasn't um, met. And that obviously has a ripple effect, but I guess to take the guys through the the poor tackle until the, until the next round. Yeah, so effectively, like we've all seen guys go off for HIAs, which is a head injury assessment. Um, it's it's a test called the SCAT five, um, which is you know a globally sort of accepted test that they run through. And they, there's a baseline that's sort of um, they all do it at the start of the year, so then they can compare you know to that throughout the year when they're tested on game days. If they don't meet certain markers in those testing, uh, like testings, then they 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 fail the HIA and they're, they're not able to return. Um, so if they enter then enter the concussion protocols, um, it's a six stage process. Twenty four hours per day is usually the bare minimum suggestion. So you usually the uh, the soonest a player can return is is on that sixth day, uh, but it's still one of those things where. 
for that to happen, players have to be pretty symptom free every like every step of the way and pretty much symptom free straight after. So the complications are are that concussions, like we're gonna talk about a lot of injuries that have a very predictable path in terms of how recovery goes, how return to performance goes, stuff like that. Concussions are just unpredictable. It's unfortunately the way that brain injuries work is that, you know, you can see a guy get knocked out. And I mean, I put out an update today about Lindsay Collins, who, you know, got knocked out and was convulsing on the field. And he came out um, in a radio interview this week and said he was fine, you know, after that night, after after the blow um, has passed the concussion protocol every step of the way, hasn't had any further symptoms, um, no worries at all. And then you've got a guy like Liam Knight who suffered, you know, had a bit of a, apparently it wasn't a heavy blow in the in the preseason. Um, and here we are six weeks later and he's still getting delayed concussion symptoms, uh, you know, hasn't been able to pass through those protocols. So with concussions, unfortunately, um, you know, so much of what I do is, you know, about predicting return to plays and return to performance and uh, re-injury rate and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But with concussions, it's all just a bit up in the air. Each case is sort of individual to itself and you just have to, yeah, treat each one, treat each one on its merits. Like that's that's the thing. Like you can look at someone like a uh, Ryan Madison, for example, who's obviously had ongoing concussion I- issues, uh, who we expect to have a lengthy delay. But we look at someone like Nathan Cleary, who, uh, from my memory, he, he wasn't diagnosed with a concussion. He passed his HIA, but those symptoms can arise after the fact, can't they? And that's exactly right. Like that that's the thing with concussion and why I sort of stick away and, and, and why the whole community stays away from being like, oh, that looks like a severe concussion or that looks like a minor concussion on the, you know, the day of the game or when the blow happens because it, it it's very, very common, unlike a hamstring strain, right? Like you're very rarely going to strain a hammy and be okay to finish the game and then two days later be like, oh, my hammy's now sore from the game. Like that, that's not how hammy strains work. Whereas with a, with a concussion, that's how it can work. So you can get a blow on the Sunday night past the HIA um, and then be fine Monday and then Tuesday go wake up and be like, oh man, I've got a bad headache or light sensitivity, that kind of thing. So it's delayed symptoms, intermittent symptoms. So they can come and go, you know, they might be around for three days then go away for five days and then be back again. And, you know, so as I said, it's just that concussion is one of those things. It is a bit all over the shop. The only way, the only sort of analysis that I think is valuable for people is the fact like a Madison, where if a player has a history of concussions or complex, you know, concussion symptoms, then they are much more likely to, you know, A, be treated, treated very conservatively. So in other words, their return to play will not happen as quickly as somebody else and be they're more likely to have those um, complex symptoms. So whenever you see, you know, a player like a Madison and, and now he's had two weeks off after his latest one, that's not a surprise considering his, um, his history with concussion. And one last thing before concussions, obviously it's not uh, an injury that's going to affect the player's performance long-term, like a, like a shoulder recur or an ACL, which we'll touch on. But we look at someone like a Jake Friend, for example. What what are the long-term issues of continually playing through a HIA? Obviously, I'm sure plenty remember the old school uh, WWE wrestler Chris Benoit, who had uh, many uh, head injuries, who, whose brain turned to basically mud. Uh, is that the problem that the footy players face with continual head trauma? Well, I think the scary thing is, man, is we is we don't really know. Like, you know, we we don't uh, like. I'm I'm no neurologist. I'm no you know concussion expert, but. 
I like I keep up to date. Obviously, it's an area of interest for mine, and, and unfortunately, we just we're not certain on what the long term effects are of, of of playing through these not only concussions but what we call sub concussive blows. So blows that don't bring on a concussion, but blows in around the head, the chest, that kind of thing that cause micro trauma to the brain. Um, so you know, there's a lot of movement with CTE, and and, and you know, discovering that that's a, a real issue in in, in um, people who athletes who play contact sport and different things like that so um yeah that that's obviously a concern for players that they you know they don't want to risk their long-term brain health uh but yeah i i think that the scariest thing is 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 there's no like people often message me and be like you know okay so-and-so's had you know three concussions does that mean he's sitting out for four weeks now or so-and-so had a really you know severe like every every situation there's no set in stone like this is what's best for a concussion because of this this and this it's it's a really fluid situation so so i think the the scariest thing about concussions and brain injuries is the unknown definitely so obviously the concussion is very uh gray and murky for, for the punters out there to sort of understand one thing that's probably a little bit more cut and dry is all things shoulder reconstructions now we, we've seen many of these in the, in the footy obviously um obviously a shoulder is a huge part of, of, a, of a tackle what are the long-term repercussions of, of any kind of shoulder reconstruction? Can a player still maintain 100% impact? Uh, is mobility fine and all things in that area? Yeah, so with the shoulder reco, I guess the, the biggest thing is, is there's different types of shoulder reconstruction. So a shoulder reconstruction is usually required because there either is A, an instability. So in other words, you've dislocated or subluxed it and it's it's unstable. So the joint is more likely to pop out in the future or there's significant damage to the structures around it. And you might not have any instability there, but you might have significant pain or something like that. So reconstruction literally is about stabilizing the joint, you know, repairing any of that damage which look you know obviously with these players it's required because if they didn't have it they wouldn't be able to go out there and still perform but the trauma that occurs to the joint in the first place obviously creates your longer term um, longer term issues and then part of surgery is you know you get scar tissue you might be shaving away cartilage those kind of things so for shoulder recos, that there's on return, there's always a what I call a softening up period. So guys are going to be, you know, not going to be as good at taking load through that shoulder straight away. But with the t- different types of shoulder reconstructions, depending on how uh, best way to put it is how tightly they want to wind up that joint. So how stable do they want it to be? Um, there's one called a latage, which is what Michael Morgan had last year. It's what Gareth Widdop had after about his third dislocation a couple of years ago as well. And the latage involves a really, really what you'd call a tight reconstruction. So in other words, the, the shoulder is very, very restricted in terms of how much you know movement. And, 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 and I guess flexibility it has to try and stop it from dislocating again. So in those kind of situations, you're going to have guys who might have a bit of restricted range of movement in their shoulder, purely sacrificing movement for stability. So that's one consideration. Uh, but the, the consideration, and we'll talk about this with ACLs and stuff as well, is, is risk of like longer term, sort of later career things. And, and that's where you come into like your Sam Burgesses and, and those kind of things with, with uh, early 
early onset arthritis. So where the, the cartilage wears away, you lose function in your shoulder. And a lot of guys are dealing with this regardless, right? They, they, they're playing a very physical and tough sport and, and, and joints cop the brunt of that. But certainly after you've had a, shoulder, a few shoulder recos, then, um, then the risk of that increases. The pinup boy would surely be Nigel Plum, wouldn't it? Like you, we, we remember those photos years ago of him just being strapped to the heavens to hold him together. Those those type of surgeries you discuss with Widdop and Morgan, would you see those more in older players to sort of get them through the end of their career rather than someone like a 23, 24-year-old? No, it, it really depends. They, they'll, they'll do it mainly after... At, at like three or four dislocations or after like after you've already had I think Widdop had two shoulder reconstructions and the issue with Morgan was he he kind of played through it for I think it was a season and a half where he had a whole bunch of subluxations so it depends it's more on the stability of the shoulder joint if it's really unstable and they don't think that doing a more traditional sort of what we call labrum repair so in other words just kind of like stitching the cartilage back on um, if they don't think that's going to be enough to stabilize the shoulder, then they'll do they'll do a latter So so those sort of tighter shoulder reconstructions, more based on stability. In an older player, it can be a little bit more common because obviously an older player is more than likely going to have more damage accumulated over their career. So there's that element to it as well. But there are, like I, I, I've seen guys, you know, patients of mine who are 23, 24 getting latigés because they've they've had, you know, they might have had three or four shoulder dislocations, a shoulder reconstruction, and, and the surgeon just goes, look, we've got to really tighten this up to, to stop it from happening again. I guess um, we we can brush over the collarbone issue because I, I'm assuming that a lot of the same issues would arise um, from your collarbone to your shoulder being connected. We could we can move down to the to the to the hip flexor and any kind of hip joint issues. Do we see limitations on players' uh, movement with their with their legs? They're kicking any kind of strength power through there. Yeah, kicking is a big one. Like you know, any any of your halves if you if you've got a hip flexor or hip kind of issue and, and I think Ash Taylor's probably he, he's got some degenerative hip issues going on that he's sort of dealing with it, it, it definitely affects your, your kicking sort of the power behind your kicking but then also the the leg drive so power through your legs so um, probably you know you, you're not going to see it too much in halves but if you if you hear of any forwards who are dealing with hip flexor or hip issues they're going to lose a lot of that drive through their legs you know busting through tackles post-contact meters, that kind of thing. Um, so that's where you, what you need your hip for a lot in those situations. So I'm always on the lookout. If it's a half, I'm like, you know, um, you might not get as many, you know, kick meters or, or explosive sort of line breaks out of them. And then with a forward, it's, you know, the, the post-contact meters, the, the drive, the tackle breaks, that kind of thing are going to be a bit harder depending on the severity of the hip injury. So if we if we uh, if we see reports next week that, that Jason Tamalolo has suffered a hip flexor injury, it's not not massive red flag straight away. But if it's a, a reoccurring thing, that'd really dampen his ability to to be that tackle breaker that we know him as. Yeah, that's exactly right. And see, the the thing, especially when you talk about like fantasy and and super coach and those kind of things, you, you're always looking for an edge, right? You you're looking. We're not talking about things that are going to all of a sudden make Jason Tamalolo only run fifty meters a game. But if you're tossing up, you know, buying either Jason Tamalolo or Ryan Madison, and you think, okay, well, um, Tamalolo's got a hip flexor injury, and that might you know restrict his power and leg drive through the tackle maybe ten or fifteen percent. That could be you know the deciding. Factor 
factor between the two that could give you the edge, you know, that somebody else doesn't have is just knowing. And it's those little 10 to 15% events that can make all the difference. And that's why I wanted to get you on today because it's all well and good that we jump on social media and see that a player has suffered an injury, but I guess we want to delve into the long-term repercussions and one long-term repercussion that seems to be popping up for a lot of players is the hamstring. Um, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's the injury that drives you up the wall trying to, to wrap your head around it, but what kind of, not, not, not even physical limitations, but the mental limitation that continual hamstring issues have. We see guys like Matt Moylan and obviously Tom Trevojevic be continually hampered with this. There's talks of Matt Moylan moving to six full time because he just doesn't have the, the ability to sprint at full capacity. Same thing with Tom Trevojevic. Is that a, a common symptom that we see with continual hamstring issues that that explosiveness and that top speed just isn't there? Yeah, like it, hammies are just one of those ones where the, the recurrence rate is just that much higher than pretty much every other um, muscle injury. Unfortunately, because of where the hammy is and, and the demands of, of a game like rugby league, the hammy is just put under a lot of pressure. Like, you know, you, you want guys to be able to hit top end speed under fatigue, especially with the game we've got now. And the hammy is just the thing that's going to cop most of the brunt. The, the problem with hammies, and, and I think some guys, it takes them a, a bit longer to realise than others, is, is, is guys might have had injuries before. So say they've had like a, you know, we talk about a hip flexor strain or, a, you know, an AC joint injury or something like that. Whatever the level of rehab that you have to do for, for a hip flexor strain or an AC joint sprain, you, you pretty much almost double it. And that's what you kind of have to do for a hammy to try and make sure that it doesn't recur again. And, and, and guys might not realize that straight away. And, and then it can really sort of snowball effect the next minute. They've got scar tissue in the hammy. They've got, you know, neurological deficits where the nerves aren't firing as well and different things. And, and you can get a lot of like recurring long-term issues. So when, when you're talking about guys who, have those recurring hammies it's definitely the top end speed as you talked about like one of the solutions is to move players out of positions where the running load is as you know is as high uh but yeah it, it the the biggest thing for hammies is the re-injury rate as, as much as performance wise it, it's 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 something and as you said the mental side of things like getting the confidence especially once you've had two or three because as I said, you, you think that you've done enough rehab in your mind. You're like, yeah, but I rehab this really well. And then it goes again. And it's getting that confidence back uh, back into the hammy and back into that top end sprinting. But yeah, the, the re-injury rate and the amount of um, the amount of rehab and, and the commitment to rehab that players have to do is, is the, the biggest sort of, I guess, stands, uh, holdbacks there. Is a hemi a career-ending injury, or is it more the mental side no. of things where a, a player just no, says no. a player a player just says I can't keep going through this? Like a, a hemi isn't going to stop someone from playing. So that that would no. lead that would lead into my next question: Is do you see guys like Tom Travoyevic? Do you think they've they've peaked at twenty three? No, so I see this all the time where they're like people are like oh should Tom retire like or and and the hemi is not a retirement injury like it's just even if like we've seen guys who've torn hamstrings off the bone you know in like just last year Latrell Mitchell you know that kind of thing it hamstrings don't end careers they frustrate careers for sure and they can make it that players don't realize their potential and and you know Matt Moylan it could be could be one of those examples but it, it, it is one of those things where 
you can have horrible hamstring injuries for two or three years and then not have it for the rest of your career if you, you know, rehab well and luck falls your well or your way. So it, it's certainly not something like, like, to be honest with you, Tom could have another two hamstring injuries this year. And I, I wouldn't be like, I, I don't think anyone who had knowledge of the situation would be having a discussion with him being like, oh, maybe you should retire. Like they'd be doing more rehab, you know, trying different ways to get around it, looking at his running biomechanics, all that kind of stuff. So it's not, it's hamstring strains like that do not end careers unless the player has just had enough and doesn't want to do it anymore. But it's not necessarily like physically you can't do it. It's more that would be their mental choice of no, I just can't be, you know, can't be bothered going through the rehab again. And that's that's the thing. Like we look at we look at someone like Matt Moylan, who's working with Roger Fabry, who is obviously a sprint coach. Is that in hand in hand with what you were saying about biometric about the way they run? Obviously, they can change the way they do rehab, and all of a sudden it could just start falling into place and, and working on the the biomechanics of the way they run. Is is there multiple avenues that players can go down to to try and mend a, a hamstring? Hundred percent. There's there's the most common, you know, common way and the most evidence based way, which is getting your hamstrings long and strong. So in other words, you know, making sure that those muscle fibers are nice and long, and then and then making making sure they're strong as they lengthen. That's sort of the the guide to and then the best evidence base behind um, preventing hamstring injuries. But there's other things too, you know, there's running biomechanics, there's core stability. Um, you know, people look at their footwear and, and, and how that lower back can be involved. So looking at treating the lower back. So there's a whole lot of different things that, you know, the, the avenues that they can go down if that more traditional way isn't isn't getting them the results that they want. And position-wise, it'd make no difference in your opinion about a player's performance, whether it's Josh McGuire or it's a Tom Trevojevic? Uh, it, it absolutely would, purely because the running load, like the running demands on different positions. Like like a Tom Trevojevic, you would want him to be able to hit top speeds because he's more than likely going to, you know, make line breaks and, and you know, burst up in support play and stuff like that. So, for like if a if a Josh Maguire had the had the hamstring history that Tom Turbo did, I wouldn't be as concerned for his overall performance, um, and and probably even his risk of re-injury. Purely, that's why they're talking about moving Tom or or Matt Mullen to six or Tom to center is to try and get that running load down to decrease your risk. It's like if you want to try and avoid getting sunburnt, you don't spend as much time in the sun. It's it's a similar sort of thing. Obviously, if you wanted to avoid hamstring injuries completely you just don't run but that that sounds super simple but like moving them to a different position where they don't hit that top speed as often would help but yeah i'm certainly more concerned about a hamstring injury in an outside back who relies on that in their game so hamstring issue for a prop forward is fine hip flexor issue issue for a prop forward is not good and vice versa for the backs pretty much yeah yep yeah i'd say that's pretty true now, one injury that um, people seem to jump up and down about because it just seems to happen in clumps, doesn't it? It's the ACL. I remember, obviously, that Roosters game last year, uh, Verrills, Radley went down. People were jumping up and down about the, the speed of the game and the rules, but they're just one of those freak injuries that can happen on, on any given day, can't they? Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Yeah, mate. Like, uh, like there are a lot of programs, um, injury prevention programs that, you know, that uh, anyone can do, but athletes do to try and prevent those and working on, you know, landing by mechanics, change of direction, that kind of thing. Um, and, and, and NRL club, clubs do sort of implement those. But unfortunately, yeah, that there, there, there's some situations you just cannot train for. Injuries are going to happen in a, in a, you know, explosive change of direction sport. And uh, yeah, like you look at Luke Keery, the other day um I, i've got a guy who follows me on twitter who's one of the best sort of injury prevention guys going around and and he sort of you know replied to the tweet or quoted the tweet and said you know like it it, it makes you feel a bit downtrodden sometimes when you look at this and you go well i couldn't have done anything to stop that uh so yeah acls unfortunately and there's an element of yeah it's just part of the game and those ones are always the worst, aren't they? If a, if a halfback or a five-eight's lining up to get the ball off a set piece and there's no contact, nothing, he just he just lands and it goes. That that can definitely happen, can't it? Can't it? Yeah, that's well, that's the most seventy to eighty percent of um, ACL injuries are non-contact. So your vast majority of them are going to be with no one touching them, and that's what you know makes them so devastating. I guess is is players sort of go, I wasn't even doing doing anything, and and such a devastating injury. Now, as someone that's a massive basketball fan, I see the ACL happen a lot. And, and in basketball, it's nearly a career, not, not so much a career ender, but it definitely sees a big downturn in production. In terms of a sport like rugby league, what are the what can we expect from Sam Verrills and Victor Radley, for example, coming back from their rehab? Yeah, so first season back, you always expect not to be at their peak performance, uh, purely because, especially with like a Verrills and... Uh, and uh, Radley because they're kind of finishing their rehab to head into like their return, right? So they're, they're finishing ticking off their rehab and then they're getting back into, into footy. So there's no, that they've had no time to sort of get through, you know, like a preseason or anything like that. They're going straight from, rehab into games so it usually takes at least six months to sort of you know throw, well four to six months to sort of get their feet and I think we saw with Christian Welsh last year like returned at the start of the year look was you know not at his his peak performance he was just getting his finding his feet again after an ACL injury but then by the back end of the year was absolutely killing it right like just just absolutely blitzing it another you know example was Roger Tuivasa-Shek a couple of seasons ago he blew his ACL came back first season back was okay you know nothing too special and then the second season back won the Dally M so the, the it's usually that you my general rule for ACLs is that second season back is when you look for guys to sort of be back to their peak the one caveat I would say to that is like a, a really recent example so like a Luke Keary so he's injured his ACL now he's had the surgery or he's having the surgery by the time he gets to sort of that six or seven eight month mark which is nearing when guys would be able to return in general Keary will be hitting the preseason right that's that's kind of when the preseason will be starting so I expect Keary to hit the ground running a lot better next year because he'll almost be not fully fit but he'll be able to participate in pretty much the majority of the preseason which will allow him and I think what we're talking about here in a, in a terminology that I haven't used yet in the pod but that the key is is that for a lot of these longer term injuries there's a difference between return to play and return to performance they're two separate things so for Kiri he, he probably will hit a point later this year where he will be if there were games 
comes on, he would be fit to return to play. But then over the offseason, he will be building his return to performance. So he will be building up to that round one level. And I think by round one, his his performance should be a lot better than, say, somebody who's pushing and pushing and trying to return in at round five or something like that, because that's when their six to nine month period falls. It's not like he's coming out and the doctor's giving him the all clear in January and trying to push for a March start. He's coming out at sort of October, November, having that that two or three month period with the team before the season starts. So that it's it's a big key point that you make that just because you're right to play doesn't mean you're right to play pretty much. Like you're not going to be uh, the Luke Curie of old until you get a few miles under the legs. One injury that probably goes a little bit hand in hand with the hamstring issues in terms of sprint speeds and, and all that. Sean Johnson's going through the rehab right now is the Achilles injury. Is it is it as bad as a hamstring issue in terms of re-aggravating? Not not re-aggravation, but performance-wise, I, I would say the Achilles is the like the ACL. Uh, like, if you went back ten years, you'd go, oh yeah, the ACL was the biggest, as you say, like not career ender, but sort of really affected performance. I think that's flipped with Achilles. Like the number one injury that I'm most concerned about for a player returning from, especially in their first year back, in terms of performance, is their Achilles. Um, you just lose the, the the studies show that it takes about one, 12 to 18 months after a player returns from an Achilles rupture to get their full burst and acceleration back. Um, now, like uh, somebody who's kind of, he's, he's kind of breaking the mold a little bit is Connor Watson. He's looked really good since his return. He, the big thing with Connor Watson is he's got age on his side. You very, very rarely see Achilles ruptures in, in younger younger players. It's it's a lot more common in in the older older players like a Sean Johnson. So that that explosion and that burst takes a little bit more to get back. But even with Connor Watson, he it, there have been certain situations I've been watching him pretty closely where I'm like, oh, the old Connor Watson, Connor Watson probably would have busted that tackle, or he probably would have you know got around the outside of that guy and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah, certainly from my perspective, the number one injury that I bake into my, you know, like whether whether you're playing draft, my draft day cost or or like my classic, you know, my buying my buying sort of appetite is is an Achilles injury. Mate, you watch Connor Watson for his Achilles. I watch him in those short shorts. I'm a I'm a huge fan of Connor Watson, <laughs> mate. So it's always good to hear that that he's looking good. As for as for Johnson, is it is it, a, is it a huge issue? If it was if it was Sean Johnson six years ago, would we be panicking a lot more than we are Sean Johnson now? Obviously, his style of play has, has changed drastically. He's much more of a, a creator. He doesn't rely on that explosive speed as to what he did in his Warriors days. So are you too concerned about this injury moving forward? No, that you've hit the nail on the head. And I think it's what we talked about with the hamstring, where it's like for a player who relies on top-end speed, you're more worried about a hamstring. For a player like Sean Johnson, if this happened to him, as you say, six years ago, I would have been like, oh my God, this is just a career devastating injury because like, it's going to take him a fair bit of time and such so much of his game back then was built on that explosive you know really off speed off the mark that kind of thing and it's not that that like he was a lot more of a creator last year and part of that was the fact that he still had that speed about him and could get to the outside but I think like you look at someone like a Benji Marshall over the last couple of years who's who's taken his limitations in his stride and just molded his game a little bit more. I think we'll see that a bit from Sean Johnson over the next couple of seasons in that you might not see that explosive Sean Johnson that we're all used to, but he, I, I don't think that will detract from his overall success in the game of rugby league as much as it would have. 
the last injury I've got on this list, mate, it's uh, your personal favorite and an injury of, that I looked at that didn't look too bad until you look at the recovery times and, and the re-aggravation rate. And it's, the, it's the list, Frank. Like, obviously, you're a big uh, advocate of, or not advocate, you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're very on top of this injury. And from someone that doesn't Definitely. know a whole lot about it, um, it looks to be an injury that, that does cause a fair bit of concern. Yeah, so Liz Frank, the, the clearest way to think about it is midfoot. Um, so it's kind of, you know, cut your foot in half and that, that's kind of where we're talking. Um, the midfoot, it, it's kind of like I'd say Liz Frank injury is kind of like the ACL of the foot. So the midfoot is pretty much the most sort of important area in the foot for foot stability, for foot function, all that kind of stuff. So an injury to ligaments in that area that make it unstable, the, the, the functional sort of, you know, I, I guess deficits that you see, but then the rehab is really, really difficult. Um, we talk about ACL, oh, sorry, Achilles being tough with their rehab, but Liz Frank, the, the big thing with Liz Frank, once again, is that unpredictability, which I don't like. Like we see some Liz Franks, they can come back in 10 weeks and, and, and they're not too bad. They, they, they still take a bit of softening up period once again before that return to performance. But some Liz Franks, the rehab doesn't go as expected. You know, there's some poor blood supply in the area, so they might not heal as well. And next minute, it's 20 weeks later. Uh, we saw that with Corey Horsburgh last year. He didn't return, had 20 weeks to return. They initially sort of hoped he'd be back in 12 to 14 weeks, and then it was 20 weeks and he, he didn't come back. So, you know, you, you, that's the thing with Liz Franks. There's the unpredictability about the um, return date. But then also, look, I'm not, I'm not buying into guys who are coming back from Liz Franks being like um, major contributors straight away in any position, to be honest, because it's such, like the Liz Frank or the midfoot area is just such an important structure for, for pretty much every position on the field. You need that, that stability and that strength and that function through the midfoot. And what makes, what makes the recovery time so long? Is it the fact that there is, there's just so much impact going through the area? Yeah, yeah, it's it's just such it's it's an area that transmits the forces from the front of the foot all the way up to the leg. So if if it's not you know doing its job or, or or like not even not doing its job, but as you're rehabbing it, as you you know you might all of a sudden start to run and and it just doesn't handle it because there's too much force going through there and it's just not quite ready for it. And you need to build up a lot slower. You might think you're going well and go a bit too hard and aggravate it really easy because you've loaded it up. So it's 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 mostly the fact that it's an area that has so much force going through it. But then the other factor, which I talked about before was sometimes depending on where along that midfoot, the, the injury is, there can be poor blood supply, slow healing rates, that kind of thing. There's a few bones in the, in the foot that, that have that. So sometimes that can be a little bit tricky too, but yeah, mainly that increased forces. Mate, one more question before I let you go and head back off to, to work. If you can give a sort of a visual description of the difference between an MCL uh, and an ACL and obviously the meniscus as well and, and why the ACL is such a, a more severe injury than, than the meniscus and the MCL, looking at someone like a, a Lock on Land, for example, looking, looking at his return time compared to a Luke Keery. Yeah, so your MCL, if you look at your knee, so you're looking at your right knee, it's it's the medial ligament. So it's the ligament on the inside edge of your knee. So if you knocked your knees together, that'd be your two MCLs sort of touching each other. The meniscus is the cartilage. So it's kind of the shock absorber in between your shin bone and your thigh bone. So it's sort of two two bits that chocks the foam that sit in between those bones to give a bit of shock absorption so you're not knocking bone on bone. Now, why those two, look, your ACL, the, the 
big thing with your ACL is it is the 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 biggest stabilizing ligament or the or the most significant stabilizing ligament in your knee. So when you lose that, you lose a fair bit of stability in the knee. Whereas lose it like tearing an MCL, like it's only st- you only lose stability. It's kind of one direction when the knee collapses in. Whereas with the ACL, you lose stability in, in, in quite a significant number of directions and especially through rotation in the knee. So it makes it a lot more difficult now. The one thing with ACLs is more, well, pretty much every time uh, NRL players will have surgery, there is a, a lot of growing evidence that some, and, and, and certainly more, more often in sort of your general public, is people are able to go without surgery on an ACL injury, and the ACL can sometimes actually heal itself. Um, and there have been some cases now coming out of professional athletes doing that as well. But more often than not, I think I think uh, athletes uh, that tend to go with that surgery just because they don't want to have to go through, say, a rehab process for eight to ten weeks and then find out that their ACL hasn't, you know, healed very well or their knee's still unstable and then they have to get the surgery anyway. It seems to be in the NRL that they just want that predictability of, you know, surgery and then come back in six to nine months. Um, whereas, like myself, in a in a in a clinical like a, a public practice, I see a lot of um, a lot of people who are now going without um, surgery for an ACL. So that might be something to look out for in the coming years, and might start to creep its way into the NRL. So just for the punters out there looking down at your knee, your meniscus is probably the, the middle part. The ACL would be the the outer. The MCL would be the inside, and obviously the PCL would be the back. An injury we don't hear a lot about in the NRL is that PCL. Yeah, yeah. So the PCL doesn't happen too often. Um, the PCL more like due to like contact, like knee into the ground, that kind of thing. Um, the, the good thing about PCLs is you can rupture your PCL and, and not require surgery and, and, and play on without a PCL. I think Billy Slater at least had one knee without a GI uh, the Morris brothers, they've all, you know, had instances where they've ruptured their PCLs and didn't get surgery. And it just takes a, a rehab process to kind of strengthen up, you know, around the knee and make sure that you, you get that function back. Uh, but yeah, the good news about the PCLs, even if you rupture it, you very rarely need surgery. And lastly, obviously the most extreme of injuries that I've seen is the compound break. Obviously we saw Jarrell Yaye with that compound ankle. There was very, very big fears of Corey Oates last year as well with, with a compound issue in his thigh. Why is that just riding on the wall? Uh, infection. Infection's the biggest concern there. Like the like you talk about, like Sean Fenson, one of the most gruesome uh, injuries that we've seen in a grand final in many, many years where he snapped his leg in two. But it was just absolutely gold that his bones stayed in his skin. Um, as weird as that sounds, like a, as devastating injury as that was, his bones stayed in his skin. So the risk of infection, you know, is, is just not, you know, nearly even like, yeah, it's just not even close. Whereas the problem with, with the compound, so a compound is where the bone sticks out of the skin, um, that the, the risk of infection is really quite high. So that's the, that's the biggest concern and that can end careers. You know, it, it has done with Jarrell Yayi. Um, if you follow the NFL, you know, like a, a, a guy like Alex Smith, who was a, a quarterback over there who somehow managed to get back and play. I saw I don't know how he came back from yeah. that. I saw it and you, you assume it's just career done. That's right. And, and a lot of times it is, but yeah, it's definitely that risk of infection. Infection's the big killer there. All right, mate. Well, we've gone top to toe, covered a lot of injuries. Hopefully the punters out there can get a better idea as to what the rehab and the recovery is going to be like in terms of performance. 
obviously, mate, you're the man to go to. I'm sure that everyone that follows me follows you. But if they don't, do you want to give yourself a quick plug? Uh, yeah, mate, just NRL Physio on pretty much anything. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the whole lot. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll be on there. And um, hopefully you, uh, everyone keeps enjoying what I'm, what I'm putting out there. Mate, I have Twitter for two reasons, yourself and Wacko. They're the only two reasons why I have Twitter. Notifications on both of you guys. I'd highly recommend putting them on. Um, but yeah, mate, look, thanks so much for jumping on the pod and giving uh, the guys a bit of an insight as to not just how an injury happens, but the long-term effects. No worries, mate. It's good fun. Well, there you go, guys. That podcast was something I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. Um, look, all the time in the world for Brian Sini, uh, the NRL physio, one of the best guys in the business. Um, been looking to get him on for a couple of weeks now and, and chat about the, the long-term effects with injuries. A lot of time for him. Hopefully that helps you guys with your decision-making moving forward when it comes to picking players, obviously, and, and holding players off injuries. There were some very interesting points that he made about hip flexes and, and kicking and, and, and bursting through the line and stuff. So that was really interesting, something that I wasn't too aware of. And look, I, I learned a lot about this podcast. Hopefully you guys did. But um, yeah, look, I appreciate that. It's a longer one today, but I think it's jam-packed full of information. But keep your friends close and keep your pods closer. That's all, folks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.